Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. Rated R. The movie you've been waiting for. Without the wait. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Reconsinimation. I'm your host, John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And welcome to a very special episode of our Super Shocktober series. But we are here with a, a special bonus episode. We actually weren't planning to, to do an episode this week, but... Uh, for two reasons. One, there is a, a new film dropping this week that relates to uh, uh, that relates to the film we're covering tonight and the passing of Hollywood legend William Friedkin uh, recently. So we are going to look at the, the life, the career of William Friedkin and arguably his greatest film, The Exorcist. Oh, this is going to the truth. This is, this is a good one. It's terrifying, but it's good. It's yeah. I, I, I'm gonna talk through tears of sadness and and just what? tears of fear, <laughs> back yeah. and forth all episode. Oh boy. Oh no. I, oh, I might uh, have to like throw my headset down and run away yeah, in, sure in fear. A, make sure you have a paper bag to breathe into, and 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 maybe a Check. fainting couch. Check. Nearby. Also, I, I, I always, that's a contractually, I have a fainting couch mm. near me at all times. Yeah, that's no, smart. smart. This yeah. is this is the new Reconsider Studios that uh, fainting couch must be nearby. <laughs> it's just padded floors everywhere. Sure. That's, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, when, when we can't, when they, when you're two, when you're two uh, envoys can't carry the fainting couch to your destination in time, luckily it's, it's soft everywhere. Yeah, it's a. I, I live in one of those foam pits. You know, that's my that's oh. my office. It's just a foam pit, so yes. it's good for sound for the show. And and uh, yeah, those I things can are just pass out. In it. Those things are what I imagined quicksand was going to be like when I was a young kid. Every time, I, and look, I don't know how often you guys fall into foam pits, but my kids both did gymnastics, and of course, as a father, when there's a foam pit. You got to jump in the foam pit and it's, those are a bitch to get out of. It's not easy. It's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. The intention is not to go into the pit, you know? Yeah. So yeah, they, <laughs> as a That's... 200 plus pound individual dragging my ass out of a foam pit is like, <laughs> yeah, not pretty. Yeah. It's uneven. It's uh, it's, it's, it's not good. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful out there guys. It's dangerous. Yeah. Falls. Well, I don't. I don't think William Friedkin was jumping in any any foam pits, at least that I heard of. So, didn't find uh, that in your research. No. Okay. William Friedkin. <laughs> Fine. Um, um, so, R.I.P. to the the man. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. 
William Friedkin, it's a, it's a huge loss, really. Um, he, the impact of, of his work is really, I mean, has really been felt through today. I mean, there's so much of what he did in his, a lot of it was in his early films, right? In French Connection, The Exorcist, um, you know, a little bit, I, I would say a little bit in Sorcerer, there's a little bit in Cruising, but To Live and Die in LA, like those are, those are some of his biggest movies. And he continued to work, you know, regularly up through this year. He's got a film coming out 2023 um, that he, I think, just completed. So, uh, and, you know, but, but what he did in the 70s really laid the groundwork for a lot of films and filmmakers coming up after him and was one of the you know, I, I call like the kings of New Hollywood in, in the 70s, along with, I, I think Francis Ford Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, like, and William Friedkin were the top three in the early part of the 70s, later joined by Brian De Palma and, um, and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and, uh, and, and uh, obviously Martin Scorsese. But they were the first three that were like, really like, in the early part of the seventies, they were the ones getting nominated and winning, you know, all the major awards and uh, whose films were just exploding on, on society at that point. And uh, was just so such an important filmmaker at such, you know, such a fascinating time in American film history. And you guys know, and I talk about it all the time here that 1970s uh, American film, you know, the American film movement was my favorite time period. And there's such, I don't think it's as appreciated today as it should be, uh, but that's what happens as time goes on. I'm, I try to instill in upcoming filmmakers that I interact with that you, you've got to go back and you got to study the old films because that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And there's great storytelling in those eras that you're completely missing out on. If you don't, you have to seek it out. You have to you know, go and find it because it's not, you know, a lot of them, a lot of the older films are not advertised to, to modern audiences. So you have to seek it out. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot better storytelling done in the old days than there is now. I mean, there's some movies that are great for sure, but uh, there's so much more content now that it's, it's, um, they're not taking the time with it that you did back then. So, sure. and, uh, so let's talk about let, let's break it up a little bit. Let's talk about William Friedkin, the person, the director, and then we'll talk about The Exorcist in particular because it is Shocktober, and we do want to get to why we're all here and and uh, such a such a huge important film. The Exorcist is one of the top horror films of all time, so it, it's going to be exciting to get into it with you guys. Absolutely, I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. All right, William Friedkin was born in Chicago in 1935. He started out at 16 years old working in the mailroom at WGN. Now, WGN is the big Chicago channel. Did you get, you got that, right, David, where, where you were? I, I think I did at a certain, there's a certain uh, time period where we had access to WGN coming in. Yeah. Where my, mine got like yeah and in new york mine got cut off i feel like 91 92 maybe wgn yeah. was just gone yeah it was yeah because i and i likened it to there there's a philly the, there's a philly station 
that it was very similar to it and so we got them both and then i was only getting the philly station so i i had an embarrassment of of a, a cable television with access to affiliates in new york philadelphia and chicago and uh and you know wgn that building that's you know that's where the steve harvey show sh- just shot and uh, over the last uh 20 years yeah they're still they st- that's still a working station it's still going wgn's hot it's a, it's a yep. hot place to be yeah Brent, did you, you didn't have have that no, down in texas no i was just gonna ask did you guys have cable as kids growing up because we did we did we did not have cable in my house growing up like we, my parents were like we're not doing that nonsense and so I did not have WGN because I think you would have had to have had cable to get that, at least in, in my area. So, yeah, yeah I, I think I, I got it when we had basic cable is when that channel showed up. Yeah, I had basic cable installed in, I think, 88-ish. I don't know, 80, I don't remember. It wasn't too early on in, cable, in the cable days, but maybe 85 so maybe early enough anyway uh yeah on the basic cable back i mean i had no more than 36 channels i think that you know including your networks so the early Uh, days the early (laughs) days the very early days so freaking starts working in the mailroom uh when he's 16 and within two years after that he's already directing live some of the live tv shows so that should he had a natural you know talent for filmmaking and for film production and kind of knew what to do almost right away. So within two years, he proved himself went all the way to the, you know, top of the list as a director, he ended up directing over 2000 live TV episodes. And, and that includes some documentaries uh, and uh, many different shows that he would rotate through. Um, One of them was actually one of the last episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock hour. And there's a story that Hitchcock reprimanded Friedkin on set for not wearing a tie. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was back in the days where, you know, the crew, you know, you wore a suit and tie and not everyone wore a coat. Some people was like the tie with like a short sleeve, you know, dress shirt. Yeah. Because you're still like, you know, you're still getting kind of dirty and moving cables and stuff around. But, uh, yeah, it was a little bit different then. So um, I think we should go back to that. Personally, I would like people to start dressing up for work again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, if you look good, you, you everyone notices how good of a job you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we, we wear tuxedos every time we record. It's in <laughs> yeah, our contract. Absolutely. It's our, we, it's our uniform. Yeah, <laughs> you don't even I... get past security at Recon Cinema Studios without <laughs> nothing less than a tux. It's like it's uh, you know we record late and uh and but if if it's a if it's a brunch record tuxedo I mean we yeah it's it's glamour yeah <laughs> you know? yeah every and... every day at Reconsideration is an important gala event mm-hmm. <laughs> just mm-hmm. can't get around it. So, uh, so by the 19- mid 1960s, he moved over to uh, Friedkin moved over to ABC TV. Uh, was still continuing to direct television there. Uh, made his first feature film called Good Times in 1967, which was uh, which starred Sonny and Cher. Wow! Not I Good think... Times, the show. I was yeah, going to say, not... yeah. Good times. No, so it's uh, <laughs> Sonny and Cher in Good Times. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
And then uh, the next couple of films he made was The Birthday Party, The Night They Raided Minsky's, and The Boys in the Band, which is one of the first films that revolved around gay characters. And we'll come back to that because it's definitely not his last on that same subject. But um, but those were really what started to get him noticed. And this is all happening in the late 60s. The same time the Hollywood system, the traditional Hollywood system is crumbling, is failing. And you have movies like The Graduate happening. You have uh, The Wild Bunch. You have Butch Cassidy happening. You have Bonnie and Clyde. And then, of course, Easy Rider. So all of those kind of working together ushered in what, what's called the New Hollywood uh, movement that was kind of like the American version of the French new wave. And a lot of those filmmakers were either studios saw that the old films that they were making, the stars were aging out. Um, they, the new directors coming in, the new, uh, you know, films that they were making just weren't, a lot of them weren't hitting the same way. I mean, you certainly had some stars who made it like McQueen and Paul Newman, but it was like way less than what had been happening before. So they needed to try something new. And when those other films, the Bonnie and Clyde's and graduates came out and were such a big success, they kind of had no choice, but to start rolling the dice with these new filmmakers. Right at this time, William Friedkin comes along and makes the French connection in 1971. Now you can check that one out in our archives at reconsidermation.com. We covered that a few years ago as part of a, a gene hackathon that we were doing. But right. um, uh, where do you guys stand? For anyone who didn't listen, where do you guys stand on the French connection? Gritty, gritty New York. Yeah. Gritty, uh, great, great action. Uh, great, great tension. Uh, tension. That's this man's game. Tension, I think, right? I think that grittiness is a good point. Like just sort of the filmmaking style in general that he had, you know, yeah. which which I think lends well here to The Exorcist as well. But kind of that documentary style, handheld, you know, kind of um, cinematography and that energy. Yeah, the, the camera doesn't go somewhere and say, it, it's, there's this weird difference of this, this style of filmmaking than today where, you can almost like you watch a modern movie, whether in whatever genre it is, it's like, I know there's no original ideas out there anymore, but there's so many people that can just sort of uh, be competent in making films. But it's like, you can almost, you almost know what you're going to see. Like, what is the camera going to point at next? Or what is the camera pointing at? Oh, there's nothing. So something's going to appear or it's going to, or it's going to pan and you know, what's coming. Uh, I feel like this was like, because of the chaos of that it's not things aren't shot cleanly like you don't necessarily know what you're going to see next and why and then it's and there's this level of disjointedness in this movie too with just some of those sequences where you know things are going on in the mind and you know uh it's it's like you don't know what you're going to get and um and it keeps that ten i think i'm saying tension because it's like well, what's next like is it going to be because it's like it does a nice little table setting like the movie does a nice table setting and then things just just rip apart and one in is like it, what you expect to be an innocent moment and it just rips apart and now chaos comes <laughs> that's great yeah so i it's like that but that's like i feel like that's a difference between like a modern movie where it's like everything not to say they're not to say i'm so clever and everything's done everything's done so like poorly but it's just like the rhythms and the beats are all the same these days. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Is that, does, is that like my crazy? 
And no, I love no, I love movies today, but like <laughs> <laughs> but it's all the same shit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that that's part of it is he's so stylized. You know, his especially in his his early work was so um there was such a distinct style to him and it was that documentary style but also the tone that went with it that french connection all of his best films french connection exorcist uh i'm gonna put sorcerer cruising and to live and die in la like those to me those are his top five that all have that that intensity that aggressiveness that we keep saying it that gritty realism that make you feel like you're what you're watching is it's not a movie it's real these are real humans these are real people that this is happening to and yeah. you you don't know what's going to happen next and that's part of what he worked some of the themes that he worked into uh you know into his body of work of you know good versus evil and fate like those are all those are recurring themes that he will come back to and come back and back and back to but uh, yeah, i'd say i'd say that's even the same with some of more his more recent movies uh like killer joe and and things mm -hmm. like that as well like same same themes follow yeah. through oh nice yeah it feels like towards the end of his career he was kind of circling back to that after some of the you know a lot of his work in the the late 80s early 90s and into maybe 2000 kind of felt different didn't feel like traditional kubrick um or kubrick sorry traditional friedkin um but it felt like you know recently he's kind of starting to come back to that so yeah. uh but french connection is an amazing film i i don't think it gets enough credit for today i mean you know about the car chase but also gene hackman discovering gene hackman giving him that chance of like really stepping up and being a leading man and he won best actor for it uh it won five oscars uh including best picture best director for william friedkin best actor for gene hackman so uh, you know by 1971 he's on top of the world and uh, peter bogdanovich told the story of like how after friedkin won the oscar for best director and beating out his friend bogdanovich he goes to hug him and he ends up like clocking Bogdanovich in the head with with oh. the Oscar by oh, accident. You know? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, really rubbed it in there. <laughs> sure, yeah. Oh. Um, but if Took you haven't his Oscar seen French... and gave him a concussion, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks. If you haven't seen French Connection, it's also one of the greatest police films and a great like New York film. So if you're in the mood for that, absolutely check that out. Then he rolls right into The Exorcist, which uh, you know just kind of launches even further from what French Connection did. We'll come back to The Exorcist in just a couple minutes. And then after that, you know, his career was was kind of a bit, you know, was all over the place. But Sorcerer was was a huge film for him that was the equivalent to like what Apocalypse Now was for for Coppola. And that was a, a movie that was very daring. It was a very bold production that was you know it's about transporting volatile dynamite across a jungle and where, where you know they could die at any second and the filming conditions were brutal and very difficult they went way over schedule way over budget and the movie came out one week after a little movie called star wars and wow. it was slaughtered at the box office and and he was sort of shunned as you know a failure and and what an awful movie it was i just watched sorcerer this week and 
I absolutely loved it. And I think it gets, it's getting a lot more credit now as being an amazing film that just, just came out at the wrong time. Yeah. That's, I just watched that a couple of days ago um, to, to get further acquainted with Mr. Friedkin. It's hell. Yeah. That was, that movie's great. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, my, my shoulders were up the whole time. Like, yeah. I just thought I was I thought my living room was going to explode (laughs) (laughs) because you also have dynamite in your living room but yeah it's true and it's 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 soaking with nitro (laughs) so Um, so why did I just don't touch it I feel like we'll cover some of these Friedkin films later on in in you know in our our 53 year contract for for this show so sure, yeah. we'll probably talk about sorcerer in in greater depth but amazing film please check it out cruising uh i did you guys get a chance to watch that at all this week i didn't i didn't but I, i'm i'm aware of it i know yeah cruising's another film that is just feels i mean another really intense film very yeah. aggressive very violent very um controversial at the time of what you know the message it was sending about that the gay community is it was it good for it was it bad for it was it a negative you know it's there's been arguments on both sides but an interesting film for Al Pacino to do in 1980 that he's uh, a very the kind of characters he's playing is very um malleable and it's not a role you see in him. He's usually the strong one. He's usually the aggressive one. That's what we're used to. So it's a very different kind of Al Pacino in that movie. And that's coming years after The Godfather, after Serpico, after Dog Day. Um, so yeah, again, I highly recommend that one. Um, in the mid eighties, we've got To Live and Die in LA, which is uh, another masterpiece, I think. Another great police film, William Peterson, one of my favorites is uh, fantastic in it. And another film with the intensity level, just ratcheted up to like past 11, past 11. Whoa. It's got to be 14. Past 11. 14 <laughs> and no, watch out. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, Cruisin and, uh, Cruisin's my next one. And then um, I want to see the boys in the band. To live in the island, I have to go get a physical copy, I think. Yeah, I was trying to find it to stream as well, and it is not available. It is not streaming, but I think I think we're we're probably going to get some. I'm guessing in in the LA area at least we'll get some Friedkin retrospectives. So we're probably going to start seeing some of these popping up in you know theaters like Vidiots and uh, you know the New Beverly, and we'll we'll, I bet we'll start seeing them here and there. So maybe we can Uh, catch it there. Yeah, we. I'm sure. I'm sure there's programming happening right now for the yeah. the, the freaking best. And then you know, one later film that I felt like really got frowned upon when it first came out, but I don't think is that bad. Is Jade? It's uh, was oh. one of the Joe Astor House written films. Who you know who did Basic Instinct and Showgirls, so it got lumped in with those, uh, but great cast and another real dark film also it's got michael bean in it so oh. uh, michael bean did two films for friedkin and that combination can't be beat i remember jade being talked about a lot i think it was because caruso did he leave nypd to go yep he left blue yeah, i to think go do that jade. was 
I think that was the one he left for. It was either that or Kiss of Death, but they were right next to each other. Yeah. The big sexy thriller. Mm-hmm. I guess. Linda Fiorentino. Fiorentino. Yeah. Uh, Donna Murphy. Uh, yeah. Chaz Palminteri. Chaz. I, I'd, I'd want to work with these guys, too. Yeah. Not Sipowitz. <laughs> I want... <laughs> I want Angie Everhart. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these later films, like Friedkin did not, he almost never really shook the negative uh, feedback that came from Sorcerer. He never made it back to that that high level again. And he was always kind of a maverick um, that he did things his way. Uh, he was not a real studio. He released films through major studios, but they didn't feel like the rest of the studio lineups. It, it felt like he was still one of those filmmakers that was doing it the way he wanted his films to do. Um, and whether they were financially successful or not, that's what they were. So um, in the in the 70s, he did create a, a company with Bogdanovich and Coppola called The Director's Company, but that uh, sort of a friendly rivalry between the three of the it ended up kind of falling apart after I think they did Daisy Miller for Bogdanovich and, and produced, I think maybe one or two other films. And then, you know, everyone went their separate ways. So, uh, but he had such a huge impact on just his directing style and his films and, and the way those films felt to the audience uh, for, for years and years and years. And I highly recommend just go back back into his library and check out some of those films because they they hold up today. I mean, just the uh, the pacing of them and the feeling that you get when you when that movie ends. Yeah, well, I do see his one of his trademarks uh, as a director is that he's uh, infamous for being volatile and uh, with his provocative behavior on film sets. So he's one of those screamer. Uh, unrelenting uh but gets you know got his way right he 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 made he got sorcerer made the way he wanted on location and over budget and crazy and and all that uh so hopefully there's people that did that always enjoyed working with him and hopefully he you know there's people that can speak fondly of him in that way but i do think you know in this era of where we're we i just want to say if this is his reputation and in this era where we're canceling people for you know sexual assault and abuse and behavior not that i want to i would ever i want to cancel william freaking for something i i'm not involved with directly but i was just like okay let's put the caveat in there he was an asshole on, on likely on a film set and made things difficult for a lot of people and uh i don't think that behavior is necessary to be successful as an artist um so just just as a piece like yeah, no, I, much. I'm, I mean, I'm like, I want to cover Sorcerer next year. At the same time, fuck that guy. <laughs> so, just FYI, that's just, well, that's and that's that's part of a lot of those filmmakers from the '70s. And the thing is, like, it, and I'm not condoning what his behavior was or denying that he was that way. He certainly was. There's a lot of books. If you read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, they get in go into great detail about some of the stuff and behavior that he did. And, and some of it was on the exorcist that we're going to talk about that. Uh, he was very, you know, brutal on his crews. They ran really long days and, you know, um, he would, it was his way or the highway. And, uh, that behavior, the thing was he 
in his later years, he admitted it and owned up to it and oh, well, there realized how horrible that was um, and that he should never have done it. When there's interviews oh. where well, all right. he wouldn't do half the things that he did, he wouldn't <laughs> have done. It was just, you know, a young, hot-headed guy, and that doesn't condone it. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna. I'm sure we're gonna get into more details, especially about the stuff on the Exorcist. But yeah, yeah. there's a pretty long-standing uh, history of mm-hmm. of his sets not being a fun place to be on. Yep. Oh. Yeah. This like- this one this one included. Okay. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> well, I I like hearing that the fact that uh, you know as he has aged and as time went on and as he saw the world change that he owned up to it. I like, I like that. I don't, you know, I don't know that maybe he had better film sets after that, whenever that, that moment came. I think that's, that sounds great. He's someone who recognizes, has that self-awareness. I I will say that I know, I know a number of people that worked with him or worked for him on his uh, handful of his later films and all just had the nicest things to say. Oh, (laughs) I love that. He he was great. And it was because I was waiting to hear the horror stories like, no, everything was fine. It was just, you know, some long days, but and nothing outside of the norm of the usual yeah. Hollywood film. So it didn't live up to that old reputation. No, so. not at all. Like that's great. Not at all. But but that that's not not uh, trying to deny the fact that, yeah, he was not not the nicest of guys uh, to work for back then. The, just just knowing there was a turn and a, a change doesn't yeah I'm not, I'm not gonna harp on it any longer but yeah knowing that occurs makes it makes it a lot easier to digest everything we're going to talk about mm-hmm. so yeah. that thanks for letting me know <laughs> yeah uh that be all that being said let's take a look at the film we're going to talk about this week the exorcist and yeah. before we do that let's do our new feature six degrees of reconsinimation. Ooh. And I think it's my turn, guys. Okay. Is it? I'm We're going fucked. to pose to you that by the end of this episode, which is in about four hours, yeah. <laughs> I need you to connect the exorcist to police academy. Oh my god. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and the <laughs> the timer starts now. All right, so we will circle back at the end of the episode and see how we can connect The Exorcist to Police Academy. Good luck. And uh, Brent, let's set the table here. Bring us back to December 26th, 1973. What were what was a couple of things that were happening in the world? Let's see, December 26th, 1973. Uh, that was Wednesday, John. And Merry Christmas. The day after Christmas, that's right. So... Getting into the area where we're pulling out of the Vietnam War, we still have a presence there, but it's starting to, to you know, we've been reducing our troops uh, in that war over 72 and 73. So, you know, as far as the vibe in the United States, there's still a lot of the hippie movement going on and, and all of that kind of counter war protests and things like that that are happening. Music wise, the top song of the day is is Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. Other music is The Rolling Stones, Elton John, Roberta Flack, Carly Simon, Marvin Gaye. Uh, obviously, The Exorcist is dropping, and it is a huge deal, uh, but it, it dropped as a four-wall, so I don't know if we're going to talk about that a lot. But oh, we, we will. Do, and then you've got shows on TV that are pretty popular around this time. Um, the Mary Taylor Moore Show, Sanford and Son, uh, 
kids are watching things like it's uh what is it help it's the hair bear bunch anybody ever heard of that oh yeah nope that's a Hanna barbera thing yeah i had never heard about that but that was that's kind of interesting the electric company is another one that kids are watching and fat albert and the cosby kids is big on on the saturday morning uh tube and then games and toys that kids are playing with nerf balls are big uh there's a big gym action figure uh the chrissy doll is a big deal um so yeah lots of stuff like that going on there's uh this is also the time when cassette tapes started to really uh kind of become a thing from from records so cassette tapes were starting to become the big big deal for for how to play music and uh yeah I don't know, man. 73, lots of stuff going on. Color TVs, those are also starting to become kind of the more popular TVs in houses. So film-wise, in the you know, looking back at horror films in 1973, there's really horror really hadn't uh taken back off again because what the horror films of the day were really still the universal horror films in America. So and spin-offs of those and many many sequels to the Frankenstein films and Dracula films and Wolfman movies and then you know even your your mashups like Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman and meet Frankenstein and there's not a lot uh you know Psycho comes out in 1960 and that's you know debatable if people consider that actually a horror movie or a thriller it's gone back and forth but uh but it's still a few years. We're we're you know a couple of years away from I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then Halloween, which is really what relaunches horror in America. So, um, you know, not not a lot of horror films bouncing around uh, at this point in time. But um, but and then The Exorcist comes. So, David, why don't you run through the plot? What's happening in The Exorcist? It's adapted from the book written by uh, William Pater Blatty. And it's about two generations of Jesuit priests there to do battle with the devil uh, who happens to possess a 12-year-old girl. And uh, the two um, come to help her after the girl's well-meaning and very resourceful, like read money, uh, mother cannot get she cannot cure her for her odd and supernatural behavior and the confrontation between the two faithful men of god and for what we can assume is the literal devil although that's not quite the case if you read the book or whatever um it's a tricky it's a tricky situation as the younger priest is vulnerable with his uh heavy personal guilt and grief and the elder is drawn to his inevitable uh confrontation with with evil uh to save the girl's life that's the exorcist in a nutshell that's basically what happens (laughs) that's pretty wild pretty much yeah there's so many Um, like funny little moments in this movie that i like too i can't wait funny really getting not not funny hilarious but just like (laughs) oh that's interesting i'm i'm picturing the the like security camera footage of your apartment you watching the exorcist and just on the floor laughing belly laughs the whole time just just rolling my sides still hurt it's been a week <laughs> you know so one thing was we, the go ahead you know Brent. one thing we haven't mentioned uh and and we we should because you did mention two reasons we're doing this podcast one is to celebrate william friedkin um but the third one 
here is that uh, in just a couple months, it's the 50 year anniversary of the exorcist. Oh, indeed. So, yeah, that's true. So I, I, I had meant to throw that in my, what, you know, it's 1973 block, but, uh, but the note got buried. So, so yeah, just to, just to throw that in there. Well, All right. Yeah, that's, that, that is very true. 50th uh, anniversary for the exorcist coming up. Here we go. Uh, when was the first time you guys saw this movie? Brent, when uh, yeah, you wouldn't have seen it in the theaters, but how did you end up seeing the exorcist for the first time? Uh, this, well, the first time I heard about the exorcist was actually from my mother. She, we were talking about scary movies. You know, I've talked about it on here before how she was kind of the person that introduced me to scary movies and everything. And she, uh, we were talking about just what the scariest movie was, uh, she had ever seen. And she, this was it. This is the one she was like, this is the scariest movie, uh, ever made as far as she was concerned. And so, uh, I went into it with that in in mind, and so when I finally got around to seeing it, it was I was probably twelve, maybe thirteen, and uh, I had rented it, and I was at home watching it, but I was watching it alone with like during the middle of the day, you know, in the most widely open movie viewing spot in the house, you know, sun shades opened wide. Like I was not trying to watch this in a dark, scary spot. And, uh, and so, yeah, I watched it by myself at home uh, after having the conversation with my mom, that it was the scariest movie ever, which after watching it, I was like, man, that's a really good movie, but not the scariest movie ever. Mom, you're a wuss. So (laughs) uh, uh, it was terrifying. But also, uh, you know, sometimes you build those things up in your head and uh, they do not deliver. And as much as I love this movie, um, I don't think it's the scariest movie ever made. David, how about you? First uh, time you or had you seen this one before? I've, uh, I, I've seen I, uh, I had seen the sort of the first like 15 minutes of the of the exorcism itself. Um, but I didn't. I purposely didn't finish it, knowing that I was like, "I'll I'll come back to this at some point. I don't want it to be ruined." But, um, but that was years ago. I think it was somewhere. It was on TV or HBO. I don't know where. I maybe I or I saw it in college with people. I you know a lot of film buffs in, in that I hung mm-hmm. out with too. So I might I might have come into it late, and then I'm like just checking it out out of curiosity. I literally can't tell you, but rewatching the film or watching the film for the full first time this week, um, I everything about that first 15 minutes was completely like seared in my brain. Like I totally remembered it. So it, that was this nice surprise. I couldn't remember, and I think I probably walked in on other scenes, but like there's just it's so uh, yeah. But my first fuel viewing was was recent and um it was interesting (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, i always i always knew of it you know as a as a little kid like i I always knew about 
you know, the rotating head, some of the big effects and the, the vomit, you know, the projectile vomit and some of those bits. And I think my dad had told me about those. I was like, oh, I never want to watch that movie. <laughs> and then when I got into high school and, and I had started discovering the 70s films, I was like, okay, it's time. It's time to watch The Exorcist. So, Brent, I did almost exactly what you did. I think this was, I want to say this was in somewhere in 96, probably. I, after school, it was like four o'clock, bright afternoon, you know, blinds open, uh, but I was home alone and I went to my basement and uh, put on The Exorcist and I got as far as the opening credits and then I turned the movie off. I was like, nope, uh, not not happening, <laughs> not by myself. So I, uh, wow. I ended up going to my, my friend Brian's house and uh, we used to, you know, like to get drunk and hang out in his basement. So we watched it late at night and we're like, all right, we're, we're together. So we're, we're cool. And, uh, and then we dared each other to walk out in the woods as far as possible after the movie. And we did not get very far before we were running back into the house. Wow. But, <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, and I don't, it's one of those movies that like, yeah, I agree. It's not the scare. The, it's not the like exorcism part that's scary to me. It, it's a it's a different kind of fear that comes from this movie that, you know, maybe the randomness of like how the how this could happen and why and why her and why such an you know an innocent. I think anytime an innocent being is like picked on by something so evil, you know, in movies, like that's that's more of like what what the fear is, what what's scary, not mm. the actual gags themselves. Mm. Although there are some shots, there are certain angles that it's like, oh yeah, all right, that that's that's good, <laughs> that's doing it. There's levels of discomfort you should feel at yeah. certain points in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there should be. <laughs> well then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Carras, and I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Carras. All right, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how we got to make the movie and then we'll we'll kind of circle back about our we'll, we'll kind of walk through the movie a little bit, maybe section by section, but um this was the idea was loosely based on the 1949 exorcism of Roland Doe, who was a 14-year-old boy who was, you know, very similar to the movie was thought to be possessed went through a 3-month ordeal uh, with similar things happening that that happened to uh, Regan in this story, and then um, you know, when, after an exorcism or sort of an ongoing exorcism, it eventually just stopped, and he woke up like immediately and was in like a good mood and did not remember anything that had happened and went on to live the rest of his life and never supposedly you know, recapture it, anything that happened within that period of time. You know, it's it's like the game of telephone, like who knows how accurate that is anymore, but that that's what the story was based on. And William Peter Blatty wrote the novel. Uh, he had been a, a writer in Hollywood. He had done some Blake Edwards films where uh, that uh, he had actually met Friedkin on uh, on one of those projects and where they kind of had Friedkin and, and Blake Edwards had a, a creative difference of opinion and had a falling out. And, oh. but that was where Friedkin got on Blatty's radar. 
Um, he wrote the script for The Exorcist and was shopping it around. No, none of the studios were interested until he made an appearance on the Dick Cavett show. There's a blast from the past right there. Yeah. Uh, the Dick Cavett show to promote it and gave such an impassioned speech about the, the story. Suddenly the book skyrocketed and on the bestseller list and was like the top, the bestseller. And then the studios were like, oh, do you have a script for this? <laughs> It'd be great to make a movie. Uh -huh. Wow. How about um, that? that? That's all you got to do then to sell your project is get on a talk show. Just get on the Dick Cavett show. Get on Dick Cavett specifically. Yeah. <laughs> and he can, he can send you to stardom. Yeah. The, uh, and the script is close to the novel. It, it um, you know, it veers off in, and combines things as a lot of scripts do when taking a novel and trying to condense it down to a two hour screenplay. So uh, you can't quite cover everything. So you've got to start figuring out what really is essential to the story. So um, Blatty made a contractual with Warner Brothers that he was the producer of the movie as well, and he was not going to be pushed out of it. And um, there was other producers were trying to come on to the movie and had uh, creative differences like Paul Monash, who had produced Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, was trying to c come in, but Blatty would not rest uh, control or let go of uh, his control on the project. So he wanted to stay with him. He, the studio wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct, Arthur Penn, John Borman, all those top directors of the time. Imagine a Stanley Kubrick version of The Exorcist. Oh <laughs> I mean, it'd probably be something like how The Shining turned out, you know, visually at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mike Nichols, uh, who had, you know, done The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and, and some great films that would go on to an amazing career, uh, turns the film down because he guarantees they would not find a 12-year-old who could accurately play the part of Regan. Yeah. So, And then as this is all going on, French Connection comes out and is huge. So now Friedkin comes back around and, and they want to get him for the film. And I think it's a perfect mixture. And it seemed like Friedkin and Blatty worked well together and maybe didn't agree about everything, but I think that was a good combination. Friedkin brings on, you know, a couple of other people that are really important to this movie is Owen Roisman, <clears throat> the cinematographer, who is so essential to Friedkin's visual style with that realism, the natural light, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, a lot of it happening in daytime, but really feeling like, obviously the scenes that are at night, but it, it really feels it doesn't feel like it's a lit set, you know, um, that documentary style that we were talking about. Everything feels natural and and, uh, you know, like like these are this is a real situation that's happening and not a movie that you're watching. And of course, the shot from the poster is, I mean, such an iconic visual from from this film yeah. that I, I, you know, I didn't realize the first time I saw it, I didn't realize it was actually in the movie, but it's a brilliant shot. It's I, I love it. Oh, so moody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that light, it's like, you know, the light of God shining on Father Marin, right? That he's mm -hmm. there to to save her, to save Regan and rescue her from the devil. Interesting that the light of God is coming from a room that's possessed by the a, a girl that's possessed by the devil, though. Yeah. 
Also, the uh, the makeup by led by Dick Smith uh, with a very young Rick Baker uh, joining him. Now, I've heard a lot of people critique the makeup job in this film, both on Father Marin and, of course, Regan. I don't <clears throat> I don't know. I, I think it's well done. I mean, I think it's really fantastic makeup that. Um, she's supposed to be decaying and falling apart, so I don't know what the criticism I don't, under, I don't understand what I hear criticism of of that makeup. And Max von Sydow, uh, who plays Father Marin, I I thought he was like sixty years old forever. He's yeah, only his makeup 44. is in, his makeup is incredible. Oh wow, yeah. he's only forty four during this. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Makes sense. It, it I was remember... apparently a process that took like four hours each morning for them to to put it on. But it's like it is it like it's impossible to tell. Oh my god. Yeah, he's aged up, and it and you would never be able to tell as a, and just like you were saying, John, I thought that he was just I thought he's always been eighty plus years old, like <laughs> because of this movie, and yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's incredible his his makeup in this. I saw this around the time that Judge Dredd came out, and I was really confused because I'm like something doesn't work here because. This movie came out in 73. Judge Dredd just came out in 95 or 96. How does he look younger in Judge Dredd than he does in The Exorcist? And I knew they had aged him a little bit, but I didn't realize like how young he actually was at the time. So yeah, for 73, uh, that's that's some incredible makeup. That's, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. But Dick Smith is a is a legend, an absolute legend in the makeup world. And he trained Rick Baker, who is coming along here and another one of the you know icons of uh, of makeup and film. So, uh, you know, great, great team on this one. But um, yeah, and those are just some of the people who are really essential into into getting this film where it needs to be. But um, let's all right. Let's talk about the movie specifically. Let's get into it. Okay, the opening sequence in Iraq. What do you guys think about this? Did you did this sequence make sense as the setup for the film, or did it just feel out of place to you and you know kind of not as relevant? When I first saw it, I didn't quite understand what was happening. So, uh, and I, I don't think it's absolutely necessary for. For the movie i think now that i've rewatched it several times like i kind of get it a little bit better or it it, it like i kind of i i think it adds more but it's also i don't think very necessary like i don't know when i was watching it this last time like there's sort of an uneasiness i think that they tried to establish early on with like some of the sound like when they're when the blacksmiths are are hitting the whatever they're forging mm -hmm. in in that stall you know and and there's this looming like something that's that's kind of happening like they've unearthed something um but i don't know if that's me like i don't know that they actually ever connect iraq to to this story other than mirin having been there and they're like hey he's off doing this thing is he back and they're like yeah he's been back since for like a few months or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to me like 
at the beginning they've unearthed something and that's like kind of the start of this this whole deal and that's why when back in Regan's room when Karis is asking Pazuzu questions and then goes back and listens to the tape it's like you know Mirren will you know it's like basically saying keep that guy away because he's trouble right you know and I, yeah. I think that that's where it ties together um but you don't really I don't I don't know that it's ever really kind of directly explained well yeah I, it it it's really set, it's interesting because it wasn't in this is in the novel but Blatty cut it out of the script. So he didn't translate it from the novel to the script. Friedkin is the one who added it in because he felt like this is setting up the ultimate battle of good versus evil. This is setting up Father Marin as your pure good character who's going to take on Pazuzu and which is the statue that they unearth is you know they unearth, they're 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 excavating a city that had been decimated and buried. And they worshiped the god or they worshiped Pazuzu, who was, you know, a version of the devil. Uh, so when they find that statue and and that last shot of of the sequence where he's they're each on they're on each side of the frame, that's that's your mm -hmm. battle of good versus evil. And he knows that Mer Father Marin knows that he's going to that's that's his mission that he's going to have to find Pazuzu and and get rid of him. And uh, and they also find I think the medallion of St. Joseph, which also pops back up uh, with Father Karras later on. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I, but as a character setup, it's really interesting because you would not see it done this way at all today. Like, you would have, <laughs> you know, like the flashback of like this sequence, and there'd be some big action piece that would happen that would set up and have a big dramatic moment at the end. Not to say this isn't dramatic, but it's much more drawn out. And, um, you know, it's not as clear what's going on here. Only after you finish the film that, okay, that's what was going on in the beginning. That's what they were setting up. So, um, yeah, the first couple of times I saw it, I was like, why? I don't understand why this whole Iraq sequence is even happening. But, but now, I, now, now that I understand it, I enjoy it a lot more. Um, Max von Sydow in this film is he really doesn't have that much screen time, but how great is he? He's great. It's fantastic. Book ends the yeah, film. He's fantastic. Um, yeah. I mean, ancient, you know, ancient Iraq Christianity had moved into, that was one of the early, earliest areas of uh, where Christianity started to spread after Jesus's death, you know, Jesus's death. Uh, but in that first century, Iraq that's where good that's where the devil basically lived <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. good the good and God and the devil is basically right there in the Middle East like that's where everything started as for if you're following the Christian lore of it all um so Pazuzu was Mesopotamian which you know was which is now Iraq um but I didn't understand why Marin was specifically there like was he just an archaeologist that as well or was he that part we don't really know i mean i i feel like it's sort of i i don't i don't have an answer as to why he was there but this is one of those themes of fate right like he was there when this happened and that's going to set him on his new path of like knowing that he would he's going to end up in a battle with pazuzu at some point 
Do they name Pazuzu in the film? Did I miss it? I think they say it once, maybe twice, but not. they don't really point it out like that. Okay. Because I couldn't tell if it was a demon pretending to be the devil or the devil himself was the idea. But I, I just, I, I didn't refer to, I only referred to him as the devil in my thinking. Of- Friedkin's always just always calls him Pazuzu, so oh, oh, okay. I'm going yeah. with that. Yeah, if that's the if that's the normal nomenclature, that's great. As a as yeah. a as a neophyte to this movie, I just like just sort of like what do you, I don't want to miss out. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure I'm, I got the vocabulary now. Um, but I yeah the uh, the the Saint Joseph medallion like that's he's Saint Joseph is, is the like the saint of christianity's like 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 the church kind of like so that like to find to find a head piece like a tiny stone toy headpiece of because he's and then to find like you know sort of the the gatekeeper of <laughs> of christianity in the same dig site and then to see his giant Pazuzu's giant statue with like you said in that frame it's like yeah that fate is set up it doesn't really matter why he's in iraq it's just that the next place he's going to be is is facing him down right uh which pretty uh, yeah just a nice little setup because then at the end when it's <laughs> the medallion we saw the medallion in the middle of the movie on on um on uh Demian or whatever Fa- yeah father father cares father, father cares uh and then you know that's one of the last things we see at the end of the movie and i'm like oh is that like is that it's just symbolized that that's where the battle ended up. But I was like, wait, did, did his medal end up somewhere in an internal struggle with the devil and it traveled through time and it was buried and, and it's just cyclical and everything's going to happen again and again, good versus evil fate versus uh, free will and destiny. Oh, it's exciting stuff. I hope we see, I hope we see something like that. And, and the new exorcist part. Maybe two. we will. We'll have it's, to find out. The fiftieth anniversary, leading to a sequel that retcons other movies. <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, the studio wanted, uh, actually, wanted Marlon Brando to play Father Marin, and uh, I, I think Friedkin put his foot down about Max von Sydow. I think that was the right choice. Uh, Brando coming into this movie would would have this is post Godfather would have taken over it and it just. Yeah, it would have become his movie, and that's not that's not what that role was. So yeah, yeah, I I didn't I had not realized that uh, Max isn't in the movie that much. Like, yeah, I, he's he's uh, on the the poster. Yeah. He's the only character on the poster, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he's actually not in the movie. He's got what twenty minutes of screen time or something like yeah. not not that much. So then we move the story to Georgetown and we meet Chris McNeil played by the amazing Ellen Burstyn. Hey. And uh, the, this, again, the studio did not want Ellen Burstyn either. What? Uh, she had to come in and lobby for the part because of her, you know, she, she had a background with the church and, you know, her feelings on Catholicism and, and really sell herself to, uh, to Friedkin. But uh, the, the studio wanted, they wanted Jane Fonda. They wanted Audrey Hepburn. They wanted Anne Bancroft. Um, all of them turned it down. Although Audrey Hepburn said, "If you shoot the movie in Venice, the whole movie, then I'll I'll do it." But uh, and and Friedkin was not willing to entertain that. Friedkin actually wanted Carol Burnett 
who cool. you know was was a comedy legend right we we talked about her recently in um in our noises off episode and just a genius but uh, but he saw something that she could you know in, in some of the dramatic work that she did and friedkin felt like she would have been great for this part of chris and I don't know. That would have been such interesting casting. It would have probably sent Carol Burnett's career in a whole different direction, or at least given her that dramatic layer that I don't think she really ever had too many opportunities to do. But, um, you know, Ellen Burstyn came in and sold her, you know, sold herself to uh, Friedkin and, and uh, he hadn't even remembered who she was in the last picture show, which was you know, his partner's major movie, Bogdanovich from, two years prior uh so he had to go back and really remember who she was and then he started to you know he started to come around to it but um i think the chris mcneil character it was really cool that they made her something other than just the mother you know she's got this whole like c plot of that she's a movie star right and we see her working on her movie set and uh She's got this quirky, eclectic group of friends who come come over for crazy '70s parties that include, you know, movie directors, priests, and astronauts, and God knows who else is <laughs> at that party. But um, I, I like how there's like little ways they integrated that her career and what she's up to into into the movie. It just was a fresh layer. Thinking of this, like if this was a real story happening today, like or the modern era like essentially who would she, she would be it'd be like imagine julia roberts having to deal with her, her daughter being possessed while she's you know right. living in it not living in her own home but moved into a home because she's got enough resources to like completely move and stay in whatever home she has a, a staff she has you know things are being taken care of for her uh clearly a, a very you know you know a, a um uh, a figure of of the industry uh, in the in the film uh so i was like boy the, the, she's like it's, imagine julia roberts going through this i couldn't imagine oh boy <laughs> uh, i think that's kind of neat like they're making a movie and i'm like oh god is this like i was like how much is this going to be about making movies and stuff luckily it's just in the, the opening, opening part but you know because I, I i'm always suspect of i enjoy them but i'm always suspect of like movies about making movies which mm -hmm. unless it's yeah. about unless it's actually about making the movie you know you don't have to spend a lot of time about like yeah on things anyway sorry people like to you know it's a lot of navel gazing how to <laughs> how to how to shoot a movie yeah freaking has no like there's no interest in that i just think but, no it's just it's just a side bit it's just a yeah. side storyline i thought i thought it was a cool little element it was meta before meta <laughs> yeah. i think it's a great idea yeah and Ellen Burstyn is, uh, to me, this is still the role of her career. Uh, she's had many amazing characters, and Alice Doesn't Live Here is another one that's you know comes right after this. That she's just, uh, I don't know, she's like she's like what Meryl Streep is now. Like she had that in like that level of just you know a few years compounded, but um, yeah. she's r so great and so believable, and the passion and intensity that she comes with in every scene. You, I, like you buy everything that she's selling. Yeah, she's great, man. Like I was watching this 
um, this last time and just listening to her on some of the phone calls and just some of the like side conversations that are happening, like the, the intensity and emotion that she's putting into them when they're kind of just sort of, they're not really central to what's happening in the scene. It was pretty outstanding. Like, I mean, it was so, she was so fully engrossed in, in what was in her character. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was spectacular. I mean, I think, I mean, you said Alice doesn't live here anymore. I think also like it, this is absolutely one of her best that she's ever done. I I mean, Requiem for a Dream is another one that really stands yeah. out, but like, I feel like this might be her best ever, you know? I mean, it's just so, so good. And, you know, we, we see that she's a movie star, but she's also a mother who has a, just a totally loving relationship with her daughter. She's recently divorced and which is going to be something that it's really like, sort of casually mentioned and addressed in the beginning of the movie, but something that maybe has a bigger effect for Regan, who uh, is played by Linda Blair in absolutely the career of the, the role of her lifetime. Um, you know, the, they, they read thousands of actors for this part for Regan. And like Mike Nichols feared it was, they, they could not find anybody and they tried and tried and tried and finally when they were done and i the the rumor is that the last person that came in on a cold call was not she was not booked but just walked in was linda blair with her mother well and yeah i read that and freaking knew right away like she had this bubbly energy she was so lovable so you know you were just attracted, you know, not like physically, but just there was an energy that attracted you to her um, immediately. And she, you know, so he he rolled the dice and went with a, a new actor and um, he really held his ground with the studio. And she, uh, it's really difficult that for an actor to play this part, I mean, a, a child actor, how do you, explain what this role is and what you're doing a lot of times with child actors they don't know the whole story you know they only they only read the scene that they're in or the scenes that they're in with their you know their parent or their guardian and their teach the studio teacher and and the director so they don't really even know the scope of the entire project but um here uh she knew it and she understood everything and she you know, the scene with the cross that we'll get to later on, like she knew absolutely what was happening in that scene. And, and, uh, and she kind of had fun with it. And she had a parental relationship with Friedkin and with Ellen Burstyn. So I I think that helped her get through it, uh, the difficult topic that she was dealing with. And I think he bribed her, literally bribed her with ice cream, you know, that like, okay, if you'd say this line like this, you're getting extra ice cream. Right. And she was like, sure, this is fun, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure she felt that way after she saw the movie, but. (laughs) Um, But. uh, Yeah, and, and the character of Regan is just so, so sweet and it's such it's so it makes it that much more horrible of what happens to her that such an innocent victim who's, uh, you know, taken by this, uh, this spirit Pazuzu. 
the maturity that she had to have to approach a role like this is pretty like says a lot just in general about like her, but also the conditions in which she had to like deliver some of these performances was also pretty outstanding. So mm -hmm. considering that she was fairly unknown up to this point and came in and was able to like overcome all of that, because I mean, if you talk about, you know, those, those scenes on that set were, were, filmed i mean it was freezing cold in that mm -hmm. in that room to to get that breath you know i mean because we didn't have the computer special effects back then to be able to do that in post so you know she's sitting there basically in a nightgown on that bed freezing in this cold room while having to you know give this incredible performance of a possessed person you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, and the thing is, is like, she shows such range throughout, like she's so like kind of sweet and innocent at the beginning. And then it just continues to get darker and darker and, mm -hmm. and she holds her own the entire time. And it's, you know, I mean, she's surrounded by, you know, Academy award-winning actors and, you know, and she's like, she's just as good as any of them in this movie, you know? And it's like, it's oh, yeah. incredible to think about like what she had to kind of endure to deliver this. And like, you know, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. Cause I mean, it really, it really showed quite a range, but I think, I think she struggled after this movie to find work because she's so good at this. Everybody just saw her as this character. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, back in this time, typecast was a real thing so yeah. you know but it's incredible her performance here yeah and i think a lot of that has to do with being nurtured too by a great director and a another great actor to really coach her and to bounce off you know performances off of um and you know one thing was like the plot point of and it's really a, a very minor one of I, I think it's more of like what the doctors are trying to counter as as things are getting crazier with Regan and her possession is getting more intense and more intense that they're trying to lean on the like well as the the stress from the divorce of the, her parents what's triggering this <laughs> probably mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah it's very stressful <laughs> so she's acting out yeah <laughs> um, I want to say also for the character, you know, of Regan when they're possessed, uh, credit has to be given to Mercedes McCambridge, who does the voice of Pazuzu, uh, who really, it took about three weeks to record all the, all of her lines and went through literally a torturous process in order to get that sound in her voice. Like she was smoking and, you know, like eating and drinking certain things to get that gravelly tone in the voice. And, but also like when she was recording, she, she was like tied up to chairs and she was really wanted to bring that physical performance out and was uh, putting herself in the same, almost the same kind of situation that, that the character of Regan was in. So, uh, so I don't know, you know, she, she had to lobby later on to get full, 
credit for that role along with Linda Blair, like when they were being nominated for awards that they should have equally been nominated because it took the two of them to play that character of Regan. And I don't think that always went her way, but how do you, what do you guys, is that fair? What do you, do you guys feel like it's an even 50, 50 split on that character? I mean, I under, I don't think that it's completely without merit, you know, but I don't know if it's 50, 50. Yeah. I, I feel like it's more like 70, 30, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because the physicality is such a huge part of it. Sure. That's all Linda Blair. And I don't know. The voice is, is, is definitely a, a significant part of it, but it's just I mean, not as present, you know? I mean, Linda Blair walked out of this thing with a broken back. Now she has, you know, scoliosis. Like, it's like, I mean, she took, she took the hits, man. She took the lumps. Yeah. Um, I agree. This lady had to smoke and drink so that she could get her voice raspy, but you know, in Hollywood in the seventies, Everyone was smoking. Is that really torture? (laughs) (laughs) Or was that normal? That sounds like Tuesday. You know, like I don't know. No, I I don't want to discredit. I I don't want to discredit anything that she did. You know, like that performance is fantastic as well. Um, You know, the voice is terrifying. Um. So yeah, I mean, I do think that there's some merit there, but I, I don't. I again, yeah, I think seventy thirty is good. I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay, so then there is Father Karras, who uh, it was played by Jason Miller, who was not not really a regular actor at this point. He was he was a playwright who had written that championship season, uh, which is a famous you know famous play. Um, he heard about the part and kind of went to Friedkin and was explained like this part is meant for him. He had the, like almost the same background as Father Karras, and it was it really just spoke to him and he knew that he was meant to play that the studio wanted Paul Newman for this role, which you guys, huh. everyone, anyone listening to the show knows how much I love Paul Newman, but I don't think this was a part for him. No, um, his eyes, his eyes are no. too light, too <laughs> distracting, dark yeah. and brooding, you know, the like, light of God lives in Paul Newman's eyes. So he's got those just, crystal blue eyes. It's just <laughs> not gonna, it's not gonna work. Uh, they wanted Jack Nicholson for Father Karras, which maybe I could see, but uh, they actually ended up signing Stacy Keach, uh, who was Ooh, yeah. you know had the role, and then they had to buy his uh, his contract out once Jason Miller came, and um, he's another great performance. Like he's such a tortured soul, even before any of our story starts, that he's dealing with this whole subplot of. Uh, having abandoned his mother that, you know, he left her behind in New York in, you know, in failing health and deteriorating living situation. And he has moved away and left her and he comes back to visit, but it's not, he's not really caring for her and he's watching her kind of wither away into nothing. And then, you know, halfway through the movie, she does pass away and his guilt for that is, is torturing him and drives him and his, insecurity the whole rest of the film and how was he gonna deal with that and fight against it um i think jason miller is fantastic and again this is probably acting wise maybe his you know his his career performance as well yeah 
Yeah, it's amazing, like the level of performance they got from the entire cast, even the secondary cast. Like everybody feels so natural and so well, like they feel like the characters, like they really do. It it doesn't feel like a performance. The only ones that feel like a performance, and this is just because it's a weird thing that nobody does anymore. Who sits around in a party around a piano and plays and sings songs with all their pals? Nobody does that. Guess. You're gonna die up there. I talked about this with my wife because um in my town, like nobody had a piano, I don't think, and definitely no one sat around singing songs together. That was a big no-no. If you weren't like sitting around watching football or baseball or basketball, like there was something wrong with you. <laughs> um <laughs> But for her, like, yep, they absolutely did this. Like, they would get together and sing and do exactly this. I think, I like, think... people would come up. They'd have a gathering at their yeah. house, yeah, with old, old and young alike, and people would sit around in their turtlenecks at the end of the, the party. They were, they were, the party's over. It was a big party. Remember? I mean, I get yeah. what you're saying. Like, I don't think their the intention was like, come on over. We're gonna fire up the piano. No, but I think that's right. I, there weird. are people that do that, that do well, and sure. did that, that, that like, that was, that was what a party well, was. Like, I forgot. It's like, There's, it's like, there is the whole movie subplot where they're, that's, the, so it's actors artists. and yeah, yeah but it's priests. Like, it's not, it's like a couple priests and priests and astronauts. <laughs> it's all, so, it's so all the, the hottest, all the hottest, uh, non-political people. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to get us all di- like sidetracked, but I just, <laughs> I, I think it. those scenes are so weird. No, you know, like, it's like, it's, you know, it bothers me more the concept you ever see like those, like, uh, oh, it's it's the family, it's the family holidays, we're all together. And then like, okay, we're all doing a talent show. And it's yeah. every year we do a talent show and we perform and we do. And it's like, families definitely don't do that shit. But, they probably, <laughs> but some do, I think they do like they're out there. But like, I would be so uncomfortable to be at a family like holiday party. And it was like, okay, gang, let's all, let's all get together and perform for each other. Like, yeah. oh God. I'll say, I, I will say that we did that one Christmas after, after the kids were born, we did like a talent thing and it was super fun. Like you could do whatever you wanted. And I wrote a short story about James Bond saving Santa Claus. And it was super fun. And we had a great time. Well, and that's right. the only time we did it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> then you became mirthless and so and... all right i'm i'm calling it now reconsider studios we're having a, a holiday talent show that's it this, this <laughs> no holiday way. season not doing it so get ready you got a few months to prepare <laughs> yeah. i'll, I'll um, sing rent yeah, well i knew it i knew you were gonna do that <laughs> you're like i saw that coming <laughs> i'm gonna do a uh, monologue from hamlet and while tap dancing <laughs> while tap dancing you got it uh all right our last uh, major character is lieutenant kinderman played by lee j cobb who was uh a a huge actor uh, from you know who'd worked in the from the 50s 60s films 
into the 70s. He was uh, a major part of On the Waterfront. If you haven't seen that, uh, highly recommend that. Um, I and his his character, Lieutenant Kinderman, is the you know police policeman investigating the situation who comes onto the case after uh, after uh, was it Bruce Dennings, the film director, is killed potentially by Regan. And when he's found he's at the bottom in, of the steps. Right, right. And uh, he is investigating that and knows pretty quickly that there's some strange things going on. So, And he always pops up at like the most, you know, <laughs> the worst times probably for Chris. <laughs> but, uh, and there's a lot of little quirks about his character that he's he's a cinephile. And he, you know, in that first meeting with Chris where she's very upset about what's going on, he like, asks her for an autograph yeah <laughs> and then admits that it's not it, it's actually for him and not for like whoever he said it was so um yeah just a, a couple of a uh, little interesting beats about that character but um the character does become more important uh i think in the i want to say in the third film the I third yeah the, the yeah. third movie with george which C. we'll Scott, talk about later on uh, which is I, also dude i read that book i loved that movie Exorcist anyway. three. Yeah. Yeah. Not two, three. Yeah. <laughs> two is weird. Anyway, we'll get to it. So going back to, okay. Looking at this film as do, do you guys categorize it actually as a horror film or is it a drama that has, you know, horror elements in it? I think it's, oh, oh, man. I mean, like, I don't know. It's got horror. It's, it's, it's got horror elements. It's not like a, it's a scary. Yeah, it's. I don't know. It's. It's, it's a. Well, it, it's. It's always categorized cheesy. as. A, yeah, it's always categorized as a horror movie, but it's. It's really not. That's not. That's what. What part of what makes this movie so great is that, it's not, about the horror. It's about faith. It's about good versus evil. It's about other things, and horror is just the flavor. Yeah, it's just it because there's yeah. a supernatural element. It suddenly becomes horror because it's supernatural. It's like it's like horror in the video store was always with sci-fi fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Was that weren't we talking about that or something? Yeah. Like that? So it's like it's all in the same. It's all lumped together in this unfortunate way. Like it's because there's like a monster. It's a horror, but it's not about the monster. Right. It's about the drama. <laughs> but yeah, but I think it's I. I think it's hard to say that it's not a horror movie. But I think it's also hard to yeah. say that it's not a drama, right? Like it is very much both and could be categorized as each, but because of the possession and horror elements, like I understand why it's always categorized as a, as a horror, you know I mean? Like it is, yeah. you know, my mom, scariest movie she ever saw, yeah. right? She's not the only person who said that, you know, like, I mean, this for a long time was considered like, the scariest movie ever made, you yeah. know, for for quite a while. And since Nosferatu. <laughs> since Nosferatu, yeah. I mean, that's fair, that's a fair example. But you know, I I think it's hard to say that it's not a horror movie if so many people's reaction is terror. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I yeah. think that it's I think that it what makes it even more terrifying is that it is kind of rooted in this fate and religion and like exorcisms were a thing that I think really happened in the Catholic church. 
And like, you know, in 73, like, especially like at that time with everything that's going on with war and stuff like that, like, I think faith was a really big deal, you know? And so like, I get it, but I think, I, th- I don't think you could say it's one or the other. I think you have yeah. to kind of say it's both. Yeah. I, I, I can't argue with that, that I, think, I mean, I think that's a personal, it's probably a personal thing of how you would answer that. What does yeah. it mean to you? Is it, is it scarier or is it more of a drama that has, you know, it's a, it's a really personal question. It's sort of like, <laughs> how much money do you make? Do you want to have kids when you get married? It's um, like, is the exorcist a horror film to you? It's when I interview Typical people, question. it's, it's my number seven question. Yeah. Well, you know that we can't, we can't slot every, everything into one box. So yeah, that's a very, there's dramatic horror. And it's more, or it's a, it's a uh, horrific drama, maybe I don't know. But then you have cheesy horror, which is most of the shit we cover uh, this month. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and so, yeah, the yeah, I mean, you know, there's horror comedies, Buffy well, the Vampire Slayer, lots of horror, you know, here, people dying by supernatural means. It's funny. It's here's my horror. here's my final take on it. If I went to the video store back in the day and was walking the aisles. And I rented this from the drama aisle and it was what it is. Somebody's going to get in trouble for having put that in the drama aisle. Certainly. Yeah. In the video store. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if it's in the horror aisle and there's drama in it, nobody's getting in trouble <laughs> because why? of that. Why you know what I mean? True. That's a good point. It's like, why is there so much drama in my horror movie? Like that's, that's how we should answer most questions about movies. Where would it fall in the video store? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely that's falling. It. It's definitely falling in the horror yeah. section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without it's, a doubt. But and which not... I saw, which I saw it there for years. Right. I, the, the box art. Yeah. But like, this is when, this is when horror movies were different too. Right. So it's like, it's such a genre of the point was to scare you. And then now, okay, now we're telling us now we're telling a scary story about good and evil. Like it's it's a myth. It's a it's a myth sort of that we're watching, you know, uh, in a sense. And then you know because the the horror like the B B movie horror was its own thing, right? Versus like there was mainstream horror, but they were like monster movies and shit mm-hmm. like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So so like this is this is like elevating that genre out to let's let's tell a real story about the evil monsters right Let, let's and they, let, let's use actual christian uh, christian and religious like iconography like uh, iconography and legends and so it's like it's a weird mix of like all that great stuff so yeah like mm-hmm. this this is not going to be next to kramer versus kramer but it would be next to the ghoulies unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, for the most part especially so, especially in the 80s but it belongs if you saw it next to cameras camera you'd be like that's that's a good choice <laughs> um i think part of you know why this movie is so amazing and works so well is is there symbolism too right that, that a lot of these 70s movies are um we've talked about it before they're reacting to post-Vietnam, they're reacting to Nixon and Watergate. Watergate's unfolding right as this movie's being made. So, you know, symbolically, like Regan could represent the the youth movement, right? And how they're reacting to Vietnam and Watergate, which is Pazuzu, (laughs) that 
you know, this is an extreme version of it, but it's sort of taking those feelings and paralleling it into the story that's being told. And that's, you know, you see that over and over again in, in the 1970s. Um, yeah. And I don't know, you know, you could, I, I'm going to be controversial and bring it up here, you know, but I don't know you have the same kind of filmmakers today who could do that with the divisiveness of of Trump and all the reactions to his presidency, his you know everything that's happened since then, and the fallout that that's still unfolding. That um, I don't know if you're you've seen. You know, we talked about it. I think in one of our Halloween episodes about the newer Halloween films that there's was a discussion that that Michael Myers symbolized Trump. Um, so. But you don't see very much yeah. of that. And back in the 70s, there was a lot more of that. Like, clearly, a lot of these stories are symbolisms for Vietnam and Nixon. And that's just so ever present on everyone's mind. Um, so it just it just takes it to a deeper level when you have the symbolism for some real life things that are going on instead of just being a straightforward horror movie. <laughs> you know, also, like, Part of, I think what scares me, and I think a lot of people is the randomness of it, of never knowing why, why does Pazuzu do this? And why does he select Regan as the victim here? You know, for a lot of, a lot of really excellent horror films, it's like, that's part of, you know, I think like, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but like the ring and Blair Witch Project, like why these people? you know, makes it feel like it could happen to you. Yeah, that's the, that that's, that's, that's the kind of horror that I would more gravitate toward. It's like, it's, uh, uh, the, well, not gravitate toward, but I do like that element a lot. I don't like, I don't like, I, I don't like, I don't necessarily gravitate toward like uh, inevitability. I like the idea that you can, there's gotta be a level of fight back and mm -hmm. you'll still lose. But if it's just, like the if it's just uh the end of the world that you can't like doomsday like but essentially just contained as a the horror element you know that you're you're dead it's going to kill you or you're going to be and there's nothing you can do like that i don't like so this this is you know so a movie like this is like nothing does make sense but there is still a chance they can save her like yeah I, yeah i like i like that and it's not mm -hmm. like because i need a, i don't need a hero i just need the i need innocent people to be able to survive you know? mm -hmm. I already well, have a chance to. That's me. Yeah, and, and that's and that's. There's always hope in this movie. That as dark as everything is, that Father Car mostly Father Karras, and then Father Marin, you know, they're not going to give up on this girl. Like, and, and that last scene with Father Karras and Chris, um, where it's, you get these quiet moments, right? Friedkin sets these the scariest moments and the loudest moments up with periods of quiet. So it's a little, the mechanics of it really work, work well in this film that he sets you up for those big scares, but, uh, or those big jumps. But there's that scene where Karis has been sent outside of the room and he's, you know, he's lost it. He's lost control. And Chris confronts him and that is, is Regan going to die? And he just immediately shoots her a look and is like, no, like, I'm not going to let that happen. And he knows right. at that moment that, you know, again, here comes fate that whatever is going to, like, I am not, whatever it takes, I'm going to save this girl, even if it means 
whatever is going to happen to me, which is right. what I, he immediately goes into. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that question gave him the boost he needed to get back up. Cause he was wavering, right? Like, yeah. Like once the whole movie he's wavering, he's, he's wary of it. And, uh, you know, he has no confidence the whole movie. Yeah. But it comes to a head the scene before when Pazuzu's talking about his mother and how he let her down. And, you know, I mean, I think that was kind of, he was breaking. Right. And I think that next scene is him like, you know, facing like, what is, what is he going to do? Is he doing this or is he not? And that question, uh, triggered triggered like his his fight response right he's like no we're not gonna this isn't happening yeah so and and that's his character throughout is struggling with losing faith the first time i think the first time we see him it's it's cool in the beginning of the movie that we see them watching each other that the first Mm -hmm. time we see father karis he's watching chris on set he's just like a bystander watching the movie production it's the only time you see him laugh in the movie. And then later on, we get this, um, we have, we, we see Chris who's walking by the, his church and where he's giving kind of a speech about having, having lost faith. Right. Or what, it, what it's like losing, losing your faith. Um, we also, in the beginning of the movie, I think it's the very first time we see Chris, I love this scene because it really sets the tone for the movie of she's just it's with tubular bells, you know, the Mm -hmm. the theme of the exorcist playing her just walking down the street and the leaves, the fall leaves blowing all around her, which is very much. It feels like straight out of Halloween that Carpenter, maybe Carpenter lifted this shot for uh, the first Halloween film, but it's so excellent that, and she passes, you know, she passes by, uh, the you know halloween represents quote unquote evil right and she walks by the nuns at the same time so it's already kind of setting up that good versus evil just without you even really knowing it that it's it's present right there in the beginning that's a good point Andrew. good catch <laughs> that's cool i'm a veteran what, what can i say there was there was a moment of uh there was something i was like oh that's that's it made the script more solid for me and it was just the that circular the circular thing they're just showing me something that that shows up and matters later without yeah. being so freaking obvious about it you know mm-hmm. i don't remember what that moment is anymore but it was uh but well setups and payoffs are <clears throat> excuse me are uh key in storytelling and it's how you oh, do them true. like how obvious or how subtle i think the more subtle they are and sometimes like like the you know her walking through the leaves like it doesn't have to be called out like it's just present it doesn't have to be addressed and you know a big moment of like oh my god this is what's gonna happen later you know right it's not, it's not something it's, it's something in uh innocuous that you wouldn't ever have to put you know it belongs in that scene anyway yeah so yeah that's what that's the good stuff yeah i mean pay, i know i know that's like that's crucial but it seems like it's not it's not like modern movies don't do that but they're just so hand holding about so much crap in a lot of these stories like you know, yeah that you know and that's okay like you you want to get to you, you want to tell a story quickly and you don't trust the audience to catch on you know be that's fine <laughs> yeah 
whatever if that's the kind of movie you want to make but but also that <laughs> but also that's uh, that's the that's the type of filmmaking that is focus group to death you know that like well i didn't get why you did that and it's like well you don't have to but i guess now but a lot of people keep saying why they don't get something so now we have to enough enough focus group people said they don't understand something mm-hmm. now we have but to it, add this scene that's just right. shitty just yeah, yeah or you know oh wait you know can you throw an adr on that guy and like we're gonna go to the we're gonna go to the mall oh now they figured it out but it like it was obvious anyway because they grabbed their keys and got in the car and then they were at the mall <laughs> right right i don't know something like it's always just like the, you're you're you explain something and 10 seconds later the thing you just ex- you explained happens um or something happens and someone has to explain why it just happened mm-hmm. and it's like but you don't need you know all that, that explanation um you know that that's the thing you don't see in these gritty 70s movies it trusts yeah. the audience to take in everything because it's such a such a the whole uh, such a visual medium right like you're yeah. not you're, you're not relying on tricks you're just relying on what you're, you're putting on the lens uh, that's uh well i love that another example is is those first scenes with regan and and chris where she you know was talking about the ouija board and she's talking about how she's met captain howdy and that it's all like played like chris barely pays it any mind right mm-hmm. and then uh the you know when she first crawls into when regan first crawls into bed with chris that she you know says like the bed was shaking and chris still like blows it off like i mean as you would you know yeah. like you wouldn't put anything together that doesn't seem like there's anything to be concerned about and they never address it like they never really go back to was it the ouija board are they saying the ouija board is what let the spirit loose right i or... don't like in today i i certainly know what they would do in today's horror films but here it's just a side note and they don't even come back to it yeah the if they did it today uh pazuzu would say hi chris it's me mr howdy and then she'd say oh no it was real and like it's like oh boy you know they would do that <laughs> nine times out of ten they do that there's a great movie that one day maybe 2026 we're gonna cover a movie called Witchboard. yes and oh boy. <laughs> It's going to be fantastic, but oh, it's exactly no. what we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We'll come back to that. But, you know, and then, then things progressively get worse with Regan, you know, pretty quickly that, you know, that party scene that we were talking about earlier where, you know, all of Chris's friends are over there having such a great time. And then suddenly Regan, who I think hadn't been like, like, I think it just started to show signs that maybe something was off. You know comes down and just dead stares them and you're all you're all gonna die or you're gonna die up there and then the right the p right like yeah uh that yeah like, it's off it's off putting yeah you know like it's <laughs> it's not that's not how you want to end a party doesn't feel good that's, that's yeah. not it's definitely beginning that's the beginning <laughs> of the bad stuff yeah very unsettling and then we would later have a line that's what she meant when she said you die up there <laughs> yes yes <laughs> that's died. what she was talking about oh now i get it <laughs> the other guy's like mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i get it too like no yeah. but that, that was like a great that, to me that yeah. was the first like great moment of like taking this story to the next level that like yeah okay we're doing this with a kid like it's and it's about to get a lot worse yeah right um 
I just want to talk about the dream sequences, Father Karras's dream sequences for a second. They're the only dream sequences that I've seen besides the amazing show, The Sopranos, which David has yet to see all the way through, yep. <clears throat> um, that really capture what a dream feels like. You know, how dreams are disjointed and unclear and you're jumping around from, you know, like time and space aren't the same in a dream that they are in reality, right? Like it's everything's so disjointed and they do such a great job the whole, the whole time. Like you hear father Karras breathing over the dream, which is reminding you the audience that you're watching a dream, like not for a moment. Are they saying that this is, is this happening? Did it, you know, did it happen? Is it happening? Nope. They're just, it's a dream and this is what it's like. While Father Karras is is wrestling with his, you know, losing his faith, especially after the loss of his mother, and we see him, we meet Father Dyer, who is a friend of his that, you know, is trying to help taking care of him because he's drinking a lot and is really like letting himself go. And uh, while Karras is dealing with that, you know, Regan's situation is getting worse. She's in the hospital and we see the real horror scene of the horror scenes of the film, which is the medical sequences that oh. are, I mean, it's, those are actually the sequences that people went running out of the movie theater and were like losing their minds over because those procedures were real things. And those doctors are real doctors who do those procedures. Those were not actors. And they were doing the exact thing that they would do for whatever well, it is that they were treating. But, you know, when, yeah, I mean, when they put the tube down her, you know, neck and, and the blood comes squirting out like that is, that's what's really disturbing about this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Friedkin went to see one of these procedures done while he was doing research and it was so kind of compelling and the people that were doing it, obviously professionals at it. Um, uh, he was like, well, let's just hire this group of people to come and do it. So in the scene, it's kind of regarded at a, at, for a time, it was regarded as kind of the most medically accurate scene like mm -hmm. ever depicted in film. And this is a procedure that they used to do. They don't do it as much any more, if at all, because of advances in medicine. But, but yeah, it was uh, definitely kind of how cold and callous and, and intrusive some of this stuff was, especially the scene where they're sticking the the stent in her in her neck. Mm -hmm. But another interesting tidbit about this scene, though, is that uh, one of the doctors that they hired, um, and we may talk. I don't know, John, if I'm jumping the gun and we're talking about this during the during the is this movie cursed portion. But one of these doctors uh, was a guy named Paul Bateson who. Um, several years later was arrested for murder and they actually, he went to jail for 20 plus years for, for the murder of, of, uh, another gentleman that he was with at a bar, but they think that he's actually a serial killer that had several other people, uh, that he had killed and he's sitting he, like, he's, he's in the film just sitting there, yeah. just a, a real life serial killer. And and yeah. I supposedly he was the inspiration for Friedkin's one of Friedkin's next films, which was Cruising. Cruising, yeah. The yeah. the Pacino character, right? I I think. Well the Pacino is the is the detective who's the undercover okay. cop, but yeah. Investigating a serial killer. So Yeah. Pretty insane though. 
you know, after this was when we, we don't actually see the scene where Burt Dennings, who's the director, who's the director of, of Chris's film is some, for some reason, babysitting, uh, or watching Regan. And we don't see the scene, but he's thrown out the window and down the stairs, as we would see later on. And that's where we well, meet Lieutenant Kinderman, who comes to investigate. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it that he comes by looking uh, for Chris and Sharon has to go run oh, and that's do an right. errand yeah, real yeah. quick? And she's yeah. like, and he's like, oh, I'll stay. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. Yeah. Yep, you're correct. And in that small window of time, you know, uh, Regan has probably become, Pazuzu has taken over and then tossed him out the window. And Lieutenant Kinderman is now investigating and Chris knows, Chris knows that Regan did this and knows that her, technically her daughter is a, a murderer. And that scene where Kinderman is just sitting, having, you know, tea or either coffee or tea with her and just talking through it all. You could like, she's so good, Ellen Burstyn, that you could tell she just wants to get out of that room. And when she like politely asks him if he wants another cup, he's like, yeah. Yeah. And she's like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. You know, she was using that first cup. That was like the, that was like the, the hourglass, right? She yeah. was watching the sand leave the hourglass and that's the coffee leaving the cup. And then he actually wants a second one, just like throws her entire <laughs> thing off. She was, she was not ready for that. Yeah. But, um, you know, and, and I don't think Kinderman like has much evidence or anything to go on. He just keeps kind of hovering around our main story. Yeah. Well, and he certainly doesn't think that Regan or Reagan right. has the strength to do what was done. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. But then we quickly see how she would have that strength. And then when we start to see these scenes that are, you know, really, I mean, especially as a parent, like to, to have to go through this and watch your child become demonic and something else. And, these are really graphic scenes where like other doctors are trying to treat her and how she like, you know, physically assaults them and grabs their crotch and is, you know, like um, the really disturbing scene with the, with the crucifix and where she's, you know, masturbating, but also like stabbing her own, you know, crotch and there's blood everywhere. And then she shoves Chris's face in it, like, like yeah, it's, to top it off, like is, uh, oh man, that is, a, it's unsettling. Yeah. Difficult scene. And that's where you, you as the audience know, like, all right, it's gone beyond now. And that's where Chris then has to turn to the only, she sees that the medical world is failing. No one's able to treat her daughter. And she turns to, uh, father father Karras and asks him almost straight away in a great scene their first meetup scene on the, i think it's on a bridge where uh again a little note to her being a celebrity that like he comes up to her she doesn't even know remember what he looks like and she thinks that he's like asking for an autograph mm-hmm. and she brushes him off but um you know I, again t- in today's world this scene would be done differently that he immediately tries to talk her out of an exorcism you know, that like, that's a last resort. Nobody does it. Nobody knows how to do it. They never, the church never approves it. Don't even think about it. Um, now it would be like, yeah, 
I'm your I'm your man. Like, yeah. you know, just got back. I let's my do last it. One. Russell Crowe <laughs> yeah. would show up and it'd be exactly. Way. Yeah. Um, so I just really like how they approach that to like, you know, we know we're going to go that direction, but it's going to take more to get the, these characters there. Yeah. You need evidence. Yeah. And, you know, as, as Karis investigates her and, you know, has one-on-ones and he's hearing, and that's where like Regan starts to reveal stuff about his character, about his relationship with his mother and hearing the voices and on the recordings and everything that's like, there's no way this person would have known that about him. So that's Karis's proof enough that this is what they feared. Yeah. Well, there's definitely no way this kid is able to speak in like backwards tongues. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, okay. Yeah. There's crazy stuff happening. And, uh, and he, he knows of only one person that's, I think, successfully done an exorcism and that's Father Marin. Uh, well, I think he we, goes, he goes to the church, right? And right. the church and the, and he's like, yeah, right. yeah. I, I'll do it. And, and they're like, well, we're not sure you got the chops and they have a conversation afterwards and they're like, what's Marin up to? He's like, I didn't know he was back. All that happened. Yeah. So, and Marin knows that this is his destiny and, and that's where that, that shot that the poster shot comes back into play. Cause this is his, this is really his moment of what his life has kind of led him to that, you know, protecting this child. So, and I don't know, Brent, you mentioned it earlier, the exorcism scenes, you know, that, that set was um, a really difficult set to work in. Uh, the Overnight, it would go down to negative 30 degrees on that set. They needed to keep it cold, obviously, so you could see the breath and to just symbolize like that the life was taken out of this room. Like there's yeah. <laughs> nothing can live in this room and except these priests are going to have to deal with it. So um, you know, really freezing cold temperatures on that set. That's always a really difficult environment for a crew to work in. Um, well, I heard because, oh, sorry, but I heard that, I heard that because they wanted to get the, the breath, like obviously once they started shooting, it would warm up in there. And so they could only shoot for a few minutes at a time. And ultimately only a couple, like a handful of shots a day. And so, mm-hmm. like, it just went on forever and ever and ever for them to get those shots done, which is part of the reason the movie took so long to make. But right, it's just like, can you imagine? Like, it's just you've got to shoot these miserable shots, but you've got to do it for months. It's like, right. I can't even imagine. Like, it would be horrible. No wonder people are rolling off of this thing being like, this is the worst set I've ever been on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, but the perfectionism by Friedkin, like it pays off. It's it feels so much so much further beyond so many horror movies because it it yeah. he pushed it to that level. And you know, uh, Bren, you mentioned it, whether the production was cursed or not. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of things happened here. Uh, Ellen Bur- Ellen Burstyn broke her tailbone. Uh, when she got roughed up and got thrown back, there's a shot where she yeah. gets thrown backwards. You can see it where she breaks her tailbone. Yeah, they keep it in oh, because wow. it's such a yeah. real. I mean, there's a lot of great like real reactions in this. And in this movie. so she she was out of the movie for like 
I think a, a few weeks where they had to shut yep. down while she got better. You mentioned uh, uh, Linda Blair fractured her back. Those yep. scenes where she's thrashing on the bed, you know, oh my uh, younger people are more flexible than us, us older, you know, folks, but uh, <laughs> not like that. And she, yeah, yeah, she developed scoliosis and it took her years to get over that. Jesus. Yeah. Um, Jack McGowan, who played Burt Dennings, he died right after filming. Uh, a bird flew into into a circuit breaker and set, uh, caused a fire that burnt down every set except Regan's bedroom. That's kind of the craziest one. I yeah. feel like, like, isn't that the most kind of like ominous of all of all those yeah. sort of sort of deals? Like, that's just bizarre. That's crazy. Um, there was a number two uh, two crewmen died on the, on the film. Oh. The uh, there was a lot of family members that died. Uh, uh, Max von Sydow's brother, I think, passed away. Linda Blair's grand, one of her grandparents, passed away. It was a lot of, you know, people somewhat connected to the movie. It was just a lot of death and injuries happening, kind of throughout the production that made people question what was really happening here. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a tough <clears throat> set. And a tough shoot to be on, but I, I read one blurb of an interview that that was done, and and I, I think it was Friedkin himself who was like, you know, we shot for a year, like over the course of a year, people are going to die, things are going to happen, you know, like yep. life is, right. yeah, is still happening. So, you know, entire... to tie it all into a curse is a little bananas, but admittedly, a very tough set to be beyond and a very tough shoot to have taken mm -hmm. uh taken place you know people die but like entire children are conceived and can give birth you know right. I mean, yeah like, so it's like you, you know you're not the same person you were a year ago in a lot of ways so, yeah uh so life happens and also you know going back to Friedkin being a, a tough director to work for these perfectionist directors who when they had all the power, which they did in the seventies, and there was nobody really telling them no, or not successfully telling them no, um, you know, it was going to drive a crew and a cast, uh, probably past the point where they should. So, uh, this was, this was one of those cases. Um, but back to the, you know, our, our last scenes, Marin knows father Marin knows, you know, he's, he's kind of coaching Karis how to you know they're they're kind of tag teaming pazuzu right like they're they're trying to care for regan who's still the physical body of regan which is rapidly deteriorating with some really amazing special effects gags right like the the carving of the words on the stomach and the the you know the eyes and the contact lenses and the face kind of excuse me decaying and uh there's, you know, of course, the famous head spin scene that's just an iconic moment from the movie. Uh, you know, all that, uh, she's just getting worse and worse. And Father Karras and Marin are both trying to tag team and uh, keep Pazuzu at bay and try to separate the two. And Pazuzu just knows how to get under Karras's skin, that the more it digs in about his mother, that that's going to set him off. And once Father Marin kind of excuses Father uh, Karras outside, 
he knows that he's got a weak heart. We've seen that throughout the film that he's taking pills to deal with a heart condition. When he gives those last rites, I think he's giving it to both Pazuzu and himself, knowing that like he, this is it. Like he can't, he's not going to make it through this and hopefully he can take Pazuzu with him, but it doesn't work out that way. He, he, uh, doesn't quite get it done. And then we, we go back to this scene with Karis and Chris outside the room that we just spoke about. And when Karis comes back in, he finds Marin dead and then loses it. Like he physically just starts trying to pound Pazuzu out of Regan and commands Pazuzu to go into him. To, he's going to sacrifice himself exactly what he, he, kind of set up that no matter what it was going to take, he was going to uh, save this girl. And he does. And that he sacrifices himself to do it. And then we see him really throw himself through the window and down the same staircase that Dennings had fallen down that we've seen a couple of times through the movie. It's set up that, um, and it's just, it's so such a sad ending that we see father Dyer come back and he's holding his hand as he's dying. And like, he can't, you can imagine the physical condition that all he can do is move his fingers and that's how he's responding. And then he passes. Um, and then Regan is like right away, not a hundred percent looking, but been uh, undemonized and is back to, uh, right. uh, you know, a, a roughed up looking version of Regan. Um, and then we we have our ending that uh, that there is an alternate ending too, where they're leaving. They're leaving Georgetown, and and it seems like all is well. And Father Dyer comes by uh, to say goodbye. And as they're getting ready to drive away, Chris gives uh, Dyer the medallion, and in the deleted in the alternate ending, he gives it back to them. Uh, he doesn't accept it, and and right. he hands it back to them. So they well, and then he walks off with Kenderman. And then he walks off with Kinderman, which is sort of a setup for the third movie, but that's right. Yeah. But that was the 2000 release. Yes. So yeah, yeah so... the original cut just ends with Dyer watching them drive away. Right. And, and it's not, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a, like the battle was won, but the, the war goes on between good and evil. And it's not like, uh, this demon was, is probably gone forever. Right. I thought you were going to say, the deleted scene was like father Dyer says bye to them and leaving. And then he's, and then he turns back at the camera a la Michael Jackson and he's got the contacts in and then it's freeze frame. <laughs> like ha, 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 now it's father Dyer. It's no, that would be incredible though. Add the that, thriller ending release. The that's thriller perfect. Ending. Friedkin. That's perfect. Friedkin right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. To- I, and it's the kind of movie, like, I remember feeling, like, exhausted when it was over. Like, really just caught up in it and wrapped up in the story and the characters and just, like, really emotionally wiped out by the end of it. That's, uh, I could see that at uh, seeing, I could see that. That was not my experience, seeing it, like. Well, you were time. laughing the whole time. You were hysterical. <laughs> I was crying. Uh but I mean, you know, it's probably only just because of the uh, how, 
understanding what I'm watching. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. horror movies with in the from the seventies with specific you know certain limitations on how things can look, and everything lurk works really well. You know, yeah, it's like I can still be moved by a play, even though I can glance over and see the wings where they with the ropes and the pulley. Sure, it's like I'm, I could be so same thing. Like the I don't need a full you know i need a full reality like i understand how the bed is moving and what the makeup is and all that stuff but i'm still moved very much by it should we see how this movie did at the box office once it came out what the uh sure how it did all right let's do a little box office glory the exorcist had a $12 $12 million budget. It was actually a $10 million budget that ballooned up to $2 million more, uh, you know, more. It opened up on December 26, 1973. Initially, it was only in 26 theaters that yeah. were sold out all the time. So, Well, it was a four-wall release, which if you remember from, I'm sure, for those for those who didn't go to film school, uh, four wall release just means that the studio basically distributes and pays for individual theaters and gets all the box office receipts for those for those theaters. They typically do it on a much more limited run and smaller uh, smaller theater numbers. So they like quite literally rent out the theater and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. come see this movie," and then they take the entire box office. Yeah, what does the theater get? They don't get that small percentage. They don't get anything. They get the yeah. money that they get the money that the company paid to rent the theater. Just the fee, the rental yeah. fee, and then they get concessions. Well, yeah, I, Serpico was was I believe still number one that week, but it um, it's not not a lot of box office info at at this period of time. But it does one point nine million opening week, uh, so that's really good considering it's in twenty six theaters. So, yeah. um. It expanded after a month. It expanded to 366 theaters and uh, grossed 7.4 million. Uh, it eventually did 66.3 domestic, 112 worldwide. And just in its initial run, it has seen many re-releases. Uh, as of today, it's racked up 441 million. If you adjust that for inflation, that's 1.8 billion dollars. Yeah. So we're talking Barbie money, Barbie money, (laughs) Barbenheimer. Yeah. Uh, It is uh, the number one movie of 1973 ahead of the sting American graffiti and Papillon. Uh, It was the highest. (laughs) Yeah. Number one. Uh, It was the highest grossing horror movie of all time until I think what 2017 when it came out. Oh, is that right? Yeah, is it yeah. 17? Yeah, I think it was 17. The first one? Yeah, it, it was 17, and it chapter 2 was like 19 or 20. Okay. Um, yeah, so really incredible numbers uh, for, the, for this film. Just absolutely great box office-wise. And, and um, you know, sent Friedkin... It, it cemented Friedkin as a top director, you know, not just he, it was now a one, two punch and, and he could sort of write his own ticket after this, uh, cements Ellen Burstyn as a, 
lead actress. It legitimized the horror film that, you know, showed that you could make a serious horror movie. It doesn't have to be slashers, although we wouldn't even get to that really, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, movie monsters either, that it can be about something else. Um, Don't Look Now is like another one that that is like a border horror drama film that's a fantastic mm-hmm. film from the 70s. Um, so it's a massive hit. Uh, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, of which it won two, but nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress. It won Best Screenplay for William Peter Blatty, uh, nominated for Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, and it won Sound, which it definitely deserved. Sound is such a huge part of this movie. So. Um, it's unfortunate, you know. I I don't recall off the top of my head what won some of these other categories, but it's uh, it is to me it's a shame didn't win cinematography. That that's one I feel like uh, possibly it should have. Well, there's you know you have reactions all over the place. So again, like audiences were going nuts. You know, uh, regardless of what anybody was saying, you had lines out the door, like you said, theaters bursting at the seams to get them in, uh, and then you had people who would faint. Uh, uh, one, one, someone supposedly suffered heart attack. A couple people. Um, there's news footage of people actually fainting at the theater, like, and they're covering it. They, that uh, people were shaking and crying. They, they, they all calling it scary. They don't want. They want to go home. Um, trying to. One woman was like, "I'm just. I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm. I'm shaking. I don't know why." Um, supposedly, one woman miscarried during a showing. Um, one man only only lasted 20 minutes before being carried out on a stretcher. I guess that's, <laughs> that, that, I mean, I guess that's right at the medical scenes, probably. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, maybe. It has to be. Um, and, you know, so then, but like critics were mixed, you know, um, Stanley Kaufman uh, from the New Republic uh, says the scariest movie he's seen in years. And the only scary film he's actually actually seen. Uh, expert telling of a supernatural horror story, but then also uh vincent canby said it's it's an elegant chunk no it's a chunk of elegant occultist claptrap practically impossible a practically impossible film to sit through establishing a new low for grotesque special effects and rolling stones john landau nothing more than a religious porn film a gaudiest piece of schlock this side of cecil b DeMille. uh so you know crit- critics go both ways but the there was and there was a bit of a religious response the um generally negative review nothing official from the vatican uh about it but uh but their uh priests were like the mostly the negative thing was like the fact that it's like exorcisms are common uh it's like portraying that like it's and it's in and that like you know that there is this true physical battle of good and evil so that it would lead to people now being interested in the the evil part the occultist part the satanist part um and so let's see there uh one one jesuit priest uh he said there's no shred of evidence in the, from the bible that you know the devil can possess anyone and you know, there, there's a, and others from the religious community eugene kennedy uh who's a priest and a, a psychologist uh you know, being a Christian and a mature person means coming to terms with our own capacity of evil, not projecting it on an outside force that possesses it. So while the Catholic Church does have like specific beliefs about, you know, uh, uh, a transubstantiation of the, the body and blood of Christ is what we literally, they literally 
<clears throat> consume at mass but you know it's it's uh but also the supernatural thing but there's no real a belief from the church that demons or the devil will possess, physically possess a, a human mm -hmm. being like there's no you know there that's not there's no official stance on that so this you know so they call out the inaccuracies and and sort of um uh they're not too afraid of their reputation being harmed but also but but more like just how things will be misinterpreted considered right like, of god versus devil stuff and yeah so yeah so you know but that was the, the so it was a mix of reactions from all over but that you know just like anything yeah but it still equaled money <laughs> cash cash that's money how, that's uh, what the studios cared about <laughs> audiences loved it yeah mm. it uh yeah, like i mentioned it's uh, was re-released several times it was re-released in theaters in 1998 um that was where I saw it in theaters and with some, some changes by Friedkin, adding some more scares in and adding more faces of, of Pazuzu, like appearing in the shadows and, you know, lightning strikes and that kind of thing. But um, I think that was in uh, 2000. That was in 2000, John. I thought it was the 25th anniversary. And then the DVD was in 2000. No, the, I think the, the, the director's cut was released in 2000, I think. Ah, okay. So it was 2000, not 98. Um, yep. Yeah, and that's where we saw the, the alternate ending and some deleted scenes on those. Yeah, they had DVDs. like the spider, spider walk and like the different yep. ending and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were, there have been a number of sequels and remakes. And, uh, you know, for a long time, it was just Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which is a, bananas film uh it it is crazy it and it's sort it doesn't of, make any kind of sense no it's very bizarre and it's sort of a prequel telling father Marin's story and a sequel with more with the regan character um yeah, yeah. Uh, not not a great film but exorcist 3 which comes out in 1990 with george c scott as as kinderman has some great moments uh, also starring brad dorif it's got a cameo by jason miller it's yeah. uh has one of the scariest moments in horror history i i think in that movie um which you have to you'll you'll know it when you see it but it is it's chilling and <laughs> i think maybe the best moment in that movie yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot. I actually read the book before I saw that movie. I remember I bought that book at the grocery store. It was on the, like, do you guys remember when grocery stores used to sell books? Books. Sure do. You could rent yeah. movies in some of them. Too. Yeah, yeah, you could. I could rent movies at my local price chopper. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I bought that book at the grocery store and I read it. And then because I was excited for the, the movie. And uh, yeah, saw that yeah. movie in the theater. Oh, nice. How many times? You know what moment Just I'm once. talking about, right? Just friends. I only saw it that one time, but I'll have to go oh. back and check it. So it's been, okay. a, it's been a while. You but should I watch it again. really liking it. Yeah. What year, what year was that? Oh, I'd have Oops. to remember. Nin 1990. 90? Yeah. Cool. And then uh, there's there's been, there was a series for a while. I think that went maybe two seasons. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, I think there was a reboot. Um, there's been a bunch of projects that never really got much notoriety um, until now, 
There is the new uh, from Blumhouse and David Gordon Green. The new Exorcist uh, True Believer is out. That is a direct follow up to the first film, a la Halloween 2018 to the original Halloween film. So very similar in concept and tone. Uh, that's out uh, this weekend. So we'll have to see how it does and how the audience takes to it. But it does seem like it's touching on the original, which I, I kind of like. So, Did you talk about beginning and dominion? No. Do we have to? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting... All right, you go, like if, go for it. Well, if you enjoy cinema and how the same story can be told different ways. I think it's an interesting study in that because they're the same movie, uh, same script and everything, but they were basically the beginning uh, was done. And um, I forget who exactly it was. That wasn't, it was basically the studio didn't like it. And so they decided to scrap it and they brought in, I think, Rennie Harlan to reshoot and and do the movie and they got two movies that they released out of it but it's the same it's they released them I think about a year apart so it's it's pretty interesting I don't know it's kind of a weird story it's kind of a it's it's also it's also Exorcist the the beginning is that well they're both like a prequel it's Father Marin's yeah, story they're, yeah 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 they're both a prequel about Marin's story they mention it a little bit in the Exorcist where they're talking about how he's done it before in Africa right. it's that it's that story um but it's told you know it's like different cast like it's just kind of it's just kind of a nutty story that they were like hey we're gonna just redo it because yeah. we don't want to, we don't, we don't really like this version. So yeah, there was, there was, there was the original cut was, was directed by Paul Schrader and then Rennie Harlan came in and did almost an entirely, I mean, they, they shot entirely different sequences Yeah, yeah. and made like a whole separate movie with Stellan uh, Sarsgaard is the, uh, or Skarsgård is the, his father Marin and, He's like the only actor that maintains in both both movies. So it is interesting, but kind That's of a mess. Wild. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's <laughs> it it it's ludicrous. Like you would like what? <laughs> How does that happen? That's so yeah. interesting. Okay. He goes. Oh wow. <laughs> uh did you guys so, ever see Repossess, the parody sequel? Oh, we're gonna oh, talk no. about it in just a second, dude. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Because it rules. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> the I Leslie Nielsen Linda Blair classic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let me oh, tell go you. For it. Well, I'm just saying you can't get to police academy in six degrees without repossessed. That's all I'm saying. That's... <laughs> I was I started going down that road, but I I, I took a detour. Yeah. Uh, oh god, boy. I uh, saw that at the theater too. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know it is that we borrowed someone someone brought it over on, on VHS and I think we ended up copying it or something as so I had my own copy and I watched that all, all the time and I never and I again I'd never seen The Exorcist but the movie's funny <laughs> yeah. it's so silly I know you like it doesn't work without the references but I start to understand the language of what The Exorcist yeah. was so it's it was actually a treat to see a lot of uh, a lot of the parody stuff from that movie yeah. show up 
I've mentioned before that I'm not a big fan of like kind of the slapsticky stuff and just, you know, I think Leslie Nielsen is great, but like a lot of his movies are sort of lost on me, but I 100% went to go see this movie because the trailers <laughs> did a whole spoof on the, the Linda Blair, you know, head and piece yeah. of vomit thing. Oh, yeah. And I was like, and, and it's, it's amazing they got Linda Blair for it. I mean, she had a very troubled life after The Exorcist, you know, as we've seen many times with child stars that, you know, how they react to the fame and the celebrity is not always, they don't always have that support system. And um, I don't know if that was the case with her as far as her parents go, but uh, as she got into, you know, her young adult life, uh, she led kind of a wild life and and you know there was some drug activity but finally she she got things back on track and now she's you know she's she's made you know done very very amazing things with her life and uh what she does for like animal animal protection and uh animal rights is uh really important but um it's you know it, it is interesting to see her like spoofing herself here and she was it was yeah. she had such a good time they put i mean they put her back in the makeup and on the bed and yeah and then they gave her com like just straight comedy to do like yeah yeah her as the devil is it was show just like these zingers that were coming out and like the movie's more like like this one isn't like a zucker comedy but it's in that vein it's like the, it's like a the poor man's airplane kind of idea like so it sort of but i i didn't see it like any different i thought this would be like like this should have been huge like it's really funny. yeah um on that and they, yeah the fact that yeah, giving linda blair was such a sport and they they had a lot of fun with uh but you could just tell it was just funny and fun to like just have fun i think there's a musical like mont there's a musical like montage or, or something like that or no the, there's like a musical uh part as part of the climax when they try to like get the devil out of out of young nancy she plays a character called nancy aglet and uh and so to get the, the devil out but i mean how silly i don't know i'm a big fan everyone who saw everyone who likes the exorcist should go randomly <laughs> possessed it's the space balls to our to the exorcist there you go <laughs> so so what do you think about the exorcist today from today's point of view do you think this movie holds up do you think it doesn't hold up Yes. Yeah. It holds, yes. Up. Thumbs, holds up. Thumbs up. Uh, but I have to tell you, so I like the 73 version better than the 2000, re the re-release 2000 director's cut. Agreed. Version. Yep. I agree. Yeah. But overall, I mean, I think it's the characterization, the tone of the film, the cinematography that is everlasting in this. You know, you can, you identify with these characters. These characters feel real. Um you know, and it it's having some groundwork laid in it being about faith, about good versus evil. It It's not just a horror movie. Yes, we, I think we agreed. It is in the horror genre, of course, but, uh, you know, there, it's about more than that. And 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 that's those themes are things people can identify with, um, you know, and these are some of the greatest performances in these actors careers and Friedkin, you know, at, at his best. Um, and it, his most commercially successful film, um, you know, and, and as far as he goes, I think, you know, the, the impact of this movie lasts to today. I mean, this weekend, we're seeing a movie coming out that is a direct sequel to it here 
all this time later that, um, you know, if it hadn't been for the way he constructed this film, the way he constructed French Connection to live and die in L.A., you know, those those things impacted upcoming filmmakers. And that's going to be the legacy of those, you know, whereas maybe maybe modern audiences aren't watching the French Connection, but they're seeing directors who love the French Connection and have adapted, you know, adopted some of that those storytelling devices. Um, I think, uh, you know, like we mentioned, he wasn't a perfect guy. He wasn't an easy guy. He wasn't a nice guy uh, in the early parts of his career. And there's no defending that. Um, it doesn't justify that. That doesn't mean that it's okay to behave that way to make great films either. Um, those should those should not be hand in hand. Uh, and I think hopefully in today's environment, it's a little easier to call that stuff out. And if people are willing to change and willing to, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people, I mean, humans in the heat of the moment don't always see how they're behaving, right? Like even all of us like can get carried away and you need somebody to call that out. And the Hollywood system for so long did not allow that and just nurtured that. And now I think we're in a time where hopefully that's stopped or stopping. Um, So, and I, I was glad to see, you know, I read a long interview with him from 2015 where he was, you know, owning up to all the behavior and, and, you know, the stuff that he had done was that was unacceptable. And, um, and uh, how he obviously would not have done that again. But uh, um, so I but that being said, I think, you know, he's made some important films, go back, go back and watch, I'm sure you've all rewatched The Exorcist, but check out French Connection, Cruising, Sorcerer, uh, Jade, To Live and Die in LA, at least those if not, you know, The Hunted, uh killer joe killer joe right that's yep yep so check them out and see what this this director was all about uh highly recommend it so and uh we will we will miss him and uh enjoy a lot of his uh films ourselves as as you've seen here okay now the big moment everyone's been waiting for let's circle back to six degrees of reconsinimation how did Brent and David connect Police Academy to The Exorcist? Who's got it? I got a version. It I took me. Th- it took me six, but I got there. <laughs> I think I'm six. Yeah, it's. it's I've, uh, I've got one in three, but uh, you, ooh. David, why don't you go first? Uh, okay, yeah, sure. So, uh, so we're going from The Exorcist to Police Academy. Mm-hmm. All right, let's start with the exorcist. You've got Jason Miller in there. You could connect him twice to Paul Sorvino, or no, you can connect this movie to Paul Sorvino with either Friedkin or Jason Miller, uh, as uh, Friedkin directed him in Cruising. He, he appears in Cruising. Uh, Jason directed him in the Championship Season when they did a movie mm-hmm. version. Paul Sorvino was in the firm, and with Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley was in Cocoon. With Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg was in Police Academy. Well, shit. You got my Beautiful. second half. <laughs> oh, shit. I, that, I, I, here's the thing. I use tools to do this. It took me so long to get there to own, to make sure I use projects and people I'm very familiar with. Because there's yeah. a lot of, I don't know all the producers and the writers and the directors. So anyway, like 
There's only I so thought I thought that it had to go through either Gutenberg or Kim Cattrall. Yeah. For police academy. And and I was surprised when I found another route. But Brent, you go ahead. Well, I got there kind of similar as David, so it's not it's not as much fun. But I I I did Linda Blair to repossess with Leslie Nielsen. Yes. Nielsen <laughs> to Hal Holbrook and Creep Show. Holbrook oh. to Brimley in the firm. Ah. Brimley to Gutenberg and Cocoon. Gutenberg to to Police Academy. Nice. 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 Was, That's great. I was branching out to, from King Cattrall. Also GW Bailey. Yeah. And I I'm tried. Like, yeah. I'm like, God damn it, I can't find this. And I finally found it through uh all I was thinking when I when I picked that one, all I was thinking was what's the opposite movie of The Exorcist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But all right, I'm I'm gonna tell you guys what I came up with. So Ellen Burstyn to Jack Nicholson in The King of Marvin Gardens. Jack Nicholson to Lois Smith in Five Easy Pieces, who mm -hmm. plays, I think, his sister in Five Easy Pieces. Uh, Lois Smith to Scott Thompson in Twister. Scott Thompson plays Sergeant Copeland in Police Academy. Well, there you go. God. <laughs> Master at work. Well done. <laughs> oh, this is a fun game. Okay. Um, well, you know, we've had a really great time especially this episode where we got you know much more into serious film but uh we want to uh thank our friends ek wimmer for the theme music curtis moore for the poster check us out we're at uh reconsinimation podcast on all our social media accounts hit our archives at reconsinimation.com give us a five-star rating and a review it always helps the show and uh and that's about it i was uh really great kind of connecting with you guys about friedkin and about the exorcist so if, yeah. if you're looking for great uh, horror films to watch this hol Halloween season, make it The Exorcist. <laughs> well yeah. done, sir. Take care. Bye now. You guys want to hear a random stretch of a theory? Ooh. What's that? I think there's a world where... Karis and Father Dyer are lovers. I've been fortunate with maybe a, a couple of films in my life where I think I knew exactly what I was doing and why. And that isn't always the case. I've made some films I can't even watch. They're so bad. And if I see them, I see, this guy didn't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> and that was me. No, seriously. But I knew what I was doing with this. I knew what this was. And I felt I understood how to, how to make it. And possibly that's true because here it is 50 years later mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's playing at the uh, Chinese theater. It was a great story by William Peter Blatty. The, the, the cast was perfect, just wonderful. And uh, I was very fortunate to, to be a part of it. And I, I still feel I'm fortunate to be a part of it.
When I die, it's not going to say the guy who directed the Sonny and Cher movie just died. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, which I did, by the way. <laughs> Not die, I, I directed the... <laughs> I'll let you know. But